You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 21st day of June, 2013. Welcome to episode 272 of the Corbett Report podcast, Solutions, Surveillance. Now, I know I don't need to explain any of this context for the regular listeners of this program, but for those who are tuning in, and there are more tuning in every single day, and for those of you out there who may have been living under a rock the past few weeks, there is a major scandal that's currently continuing to unfold regarding the NSA and the total surveillance of all electronic communications going on in and through and around the United States and around the globe. And yes, you did hear me correctly, total government surveillance. Right now, if you are following the mainstream headlines, you will probably only have heard vague talk about metadata and the possibility that some Americans' phone calls were accidentally being recorded or scooped up in this, etc., etc. But the real scandals have been broken for years and are only starting to come to the surface now, which is that, in fact, all electronic communications, uh, emails, faxes, telephone calls, everything is being collected and stored wholesale by the NSA. And this is gradually coming to the surface now. And the full ramifications of this are only beginning to scrape and claw their way into the mainstream consciousness. And I would generally be very skeptical about the possibility of this scandal being anything more than a controlled, limited hangout. But there are signs that there is genuine progress being made in breaking through the real story uh, through the the mainstream media, establishment media, mouthpiece media cover-up. And I say this advisedly because the most important part of this whole scandal has just broken and broken in a big way. Two days ago, for those of you listening on the June 21st, two days ago, BoilingFrogsPost.com published a podcast interview with ex-NSA whistleblower Russell Tice, who has for years been talking about how the NSA has been tapping, for example, uh, journalists' communications. And somehow, when the AP spying story came up recently, it all seemed like it was new. But in fact, Russell Tice and other NSA whistleblowers have been talking about this for years, and have even talked about it on mainstream outlets like MSNBC. But somehow, that just all got swept into the memory hole. Well, Russell Tice just gave an explosive interview to BoilingFrogsPost.com in which he named names of who was being targeted for NSA surveillance. And he was talking about documents that he saw and he held in his own hands, authorizing the wiretap of, amongst others, then-Illinois Senator, soon-to-be President Barack Obama. This is absolutely explosive. It goes to the heart of what this total government surveillance is really about, which is, for example, ultimate political power, because he who controls those wiretaps controls the politicians that are being wiretapped. This is Blackmail 101. This is a bombshell story. I would generally expect it to be completely swept up and and swept under the rug and covered up by the mainstream establishment media, but even they cannot ignore stories this big when we push them out in a big way. 
So a big thank you to everyone who has been pushing this story out there, and it is now starting to hit in a big time, a uh, big way. It got put posted on Huffington Post, it made the front page of AOL, it got to The Blaze, it's on Drudge Report. So it is now going to be a major mainstream story as piggybacking on the Snowden story. So we're getting some real information out there for the masses. And for those of you who haven't listened to that Boiling Frogs Post interview, I will put it in the show notes for today's episode so you can go and listen to it. I also conducted my own follow-up interview with Russell Tice yesterday, and that is available on Corbett Report, where I pressed Russ for more information about those wiretap orders, who the people that were being targeted, how, what those uh, orders looked like, and, and all of that information. I tried to get as much as I possibly could into that interview, so that is now available for download from CorbettReport.com. So please get this out, and, and please help to push this out into the mainstream. This is the real spying story. This is the real scandal. And we are breaking through into mainstream coverage. So once again, for those of you who are just joining this story, maybe you're in luck because you can skip over all of the the false red herrings and all the limited hangouts about metadata and the like and go straight to the heart of the story, which is that the NSA is involved in total governmental surveillance of all electronic communications and that this is being used for blackmail purposes on politicians, judges, lawyers, and other high-ranking officials of the government. So this should not be surprising to regular listeners of the Corbett Report, but it is good to have this confirmed by ex-NSA whistleblowers and insiders who actually held the documents in their hands. This is extremely important information. And it does raise the question, obviously it raises the question, what can be done about this? And there are lots of people talking about different ways that you can have encrypted emails and the like, but the reality is that everything that you do is being stored by the NSA, and whether they can actually break that encryption now, or whether we have to wait for the advent of quantum computing, assuming it's not already here, secretly behind the scenes, at any rate, it's safe to say that at some point in the future, those encryptions will be broken and the uh, the contents of those emails and, and other communications, if they are not available right now, will be at some point in the future. This is an extremely depressing fact, and it does raise the very good question of what can be done about this. Well, one example of a lead-in to how we can answer that question came from an interesting story that broke just on the eve, on the brink of the recent G20 conference in Belfast. The Guardian's latest leaks pertain to the UK's Government Communications Headquarters, or GCHQ, which is a British intelligence organization similar to the NSA. The agency was apparently ordered to collect information on foreign delegates at the British-hosted G20 summit in 2009. Documents revealed to The Guardian show that GCHQ allegedly used several tactics to spy on various delegates. These include tricking delegates into using internet cafes with keylogging and email interception software installed on every computer, bypassing security of BlackBerry phones to monitor communications and specifically targeting the communications of certain delegates, including the Turkish finance minister and Russian leader Dmitry Medvedev. No good can come of his revelations. The question is, why does Snowden think it's okay to tell them the details of that espionage? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. Yes, indeed. Uh, it should probably come as no surprise. But at any rate, once again, this is more of what's being confirmed and, and leaked out through documents that, yes, indeed, the US and the UK, GCHQ and the NSA and their alphabet soup brethren are engaged 
in spying on their friends and allies in the G20, G8 conferences. Again, this should not be so surprising, but some of the tactics and methods that they go to are uh, frankly ridiculous, kind of almost humorous if it wasn't such a serious thing that's happening, including setting up fake internet cafes so that the delegates attending these, uh, these conferences will use those cafes and have all of their communications intercepted. Just ridiculous levels of spying that are happening between allies and friends, which again is not fundamentally a surprise to anyone who understands how international relations works, but of course the revelation of such spying is always a bit of egg on the face, which is one of the grand ironies of this story, because you'll notice that uh, people like Richard Clark, oh your government failed you on 9-11, Richard Clark, uh, comes out to, to say that it's just disgusting that he would release this information. What's the point of releasing this information? Because the overarching narrative is that it's good, it's for your safety, it's for your security to have the government watching everything that you do and everything that their allies and friends do and everything that Congress and the president and everyone else does. But it's absolutely horrible if you want to see what they do. That's off the limits. That's, that's ridiculous. That's beyond the pale. To even s suggest that there should be transparency, that the people should be watching the government no, 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 no. Only the other way around makes sense. The government should be watching you. So this gives us an entree into today's episode and what I want to talk about, because we are all at this point familiar with the idea of surveillance, that there are cameras watching us, that there are uh, NSA uh, wiretaps and other things de uh, collecting all of the content and data that we're sending electronically every single day, that there's a, a spy grid that has been erect erected around us and hardwired into the technology itself, the backdoors of the operating systems and all of that, which we have been at pain at some pains to detail in this program in the past all of this has been constructed around us to make sure that the citizens know that they are being watched all the time this is the idea of the panopticon which again we have talked about many times on this program in the past the idea for a perfect prison where the prisoners police themselves because they feel that they are being watched all the time so once again what is the solution to this how do we counteract this well in the spirit of, if you can't beat them, join them, may I introduce to you the concept of surveillance. Surveillance is a term coined by Professor Steve Mann at the University of Toronto. Surveillance, in contrast to surveillance, is the recording of an activity by participants in that activity. Here's an example of surveillance. A friend of ours got into some trouble with a police officer on campus and he was detaining him without any reason. Surveillance helped him get out of trouble. Okay, so are you detaining this person for any reason? Pardon? Are you detaining Mr. Uh, John for any reason here? Why? Because he, you're not letting him go. So if you're not letting him go, can you please... Uh, you are who? It doesn't you matter who I, who I am. I'm representing him. You're representing him while you're in trouble? No, I'm representing okay. him. We'll have nothing more out of you. Okay, I can keep talking if I want to. Sure. I'm just but asking you a question. John, you can leave. Yeah, listen, he's not going to get him in trouble. Let him we, we have to leave. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just joking around with him. Do you think that John broke? Yeah. Yeah, 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 sorry about that. Okay, let's go. Thank you. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> hey, waste your time. It's a waste of your time, actually. Uh, the guy's just giving him a hard time. 
You can see from the video that the police officer was holding my friend against his will and surveillance got that all on, on camera. Even though there were surveillance cameras there, um, they didn't really do much because we can't get that footage. However, the surveillance footage, we can use that. We can show other people what, what's going on. That's right, surveillance. The recording of an activity by the participants in that activity. Now, I think the distinction between surveillance and surveillance is apparent, but let's draw that out just so that we're all on the same page. In surveillance, there is no consent necessary or usually given in the recording of an activity. It is done one way by the host of the event or by the governmental authorities on the population without the population in some cases even knowing that that surveillance is taking place and even when they do know about it there's not much they can do about it and in a situation where they have been treated unfairly by the host of the event or the authorities quote unquote then there is very usually very little recourse for the population to get at that footage to actually use it the the recording of that event sometimes that does take place but other times mysteriously the CCTV cameras were malfunctioning at the precise moment when they would have been needed most. Uh, CF-77, Oklahoma City, etc., etc. So, in surveillance, the recording is being done by a third party, that, and there is usually no consent given or even asked for, or in some cases there's not, not even the knowledge that the recording is taking place. With surveillance, the people who are participating in the event themselves are documenting that event, with the obvious added advantage that if there is some sort of abuse of authority going on, the people have direct access to their own recording or what have you of that event so that they can use that in their defense. And it is demonstrable that this has had a remarkable effect as the types of recording technologies that are used to, uh, to record events have become almost ubiquitous so too has the rise in events where police misconduct, for example, has started to become thoroughly documented, exposed, and in many cases, even prosecuted based on the evidence supplied by the people themselves, not the evidence supplied by governmental surveillance or other types of CCTV surveillance, but by people themselves recording the events. In fact, this has become such a ubiquitous phenomenon that even the mainstream establishment news media has been forced to cover it. With so many of us carrying cell phone and digital cameras, we'll be seeing a lot more eyewitness video. So what should you keep in mind if you see news unfolding in front of you? Melanie Nagy has some of the answers. All it took was the flick of a switch on this digital camera. The result was this. Some call it citizen journalism. Everyday folks armed with a camera or recording device capturing the events that unfold around them. The tools to report on the world around you are in the hands of ordinary citizens. This UBC journalism professor says video captured by the public is increasingly becoming more available and more important. It used to be said that journalists wrote the first draft of history, but now increasingly what we're seeing is that ordinary people, citizens, are capturing that first draft and they're capturing it in images and video. And then that video is extraordinarily powerful. Do you want to try me, young boy? You want to try me tonight, young boy? You want to go to jail for some reason I come up with? The driver getting yelled at in a commuter parking lot outside St. Louis is Brett Darrow, who has installed a camera in his car. And the camera runs all the time? Yeah. Come on, boy. Come on, boy. Give me some more love. 
But the lip came from Sergeant James Kenline. His rant was sent by Darrow to friends and ended up all over the Internet. Cop Gone Wild reads one title. The officer has been put on unpaid administrative leave. It's easy to see, and in some cases literally easy to see by going, for example, to YouTube and typing Citizens Film Police into the YouTube search engine. It's easy to see how surveillance can be a remarkably effective tool for keeping the wayward law enforcement so-called authorities in line by not only recording and documenting their abuses, but also making them available on social media and on the internet generally to hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, in some cases millions of people, almost simultaneously, almost instantaneously. And in fact, with the recent upgrades in technology, that is in fact possible to do instantaneously with live streaming right from your phone directly to the internet. So we do live in a remarkable era in which there has been a an unbelievable leveling of the playing field when it comes to recording technologies and how that can be used to spread awareness of what's really going on so that abuses can be much harder to get away with in this day and age where everyone has recording technology in their pockets. It is a very important phenomenon that's happening. And as I say, it's easy to see how that can happen, how that can be effective, for example, in the law enforcement authority uh, context. It is equally important to understand how this is revolutionizing citizen media generally and how there are there is a certain class of people, the super class, as uh, David Rothkopf would have it, the, one of Henry Kissinger's acolytes, the super class that has hitherto in history been untouchable by the average population, are now being exposed on the internet for who they are, what they are, and what they really stand for by average citizens with nothing more than a cell phone and the willingness to use it. Rockefellers, come back. We don't want your new world order, you know? Mm -hmm. Leave Chile right now. Leave Chile. You are not... You're, you're killing a lot of people! You're killing a lot of people! Leave here! Leave Chile right now! Leave Chile! Leave Chile! We don't want your world government! Leave Chile right now! Uh, the Bilderberg Group is currently and actively pursuing an agenda to formulate a North American community, uh, which may lead to a North American common market and eventually a North American Union. So my question is, uh, in 2005, when you signed the Security and Prosperity Partnership, um, were you aware at that time of any plans to integrate the uh, countries of Canada, US, and Mexico into a North American community similar to a European Union. And considering that the fact that there was no referendum uh, from the people on this agreement, um, as a former Bilderberg attendee, could you please describe what your intentions were when you signed the SPP on behalf of the Canadian people? Well, okay. Um, uh, I, uh, I attended one Bilderberg meeting. Uh, I'm not sure they ever invited me back, but, the, uh, but, uh, but just to make sure, I've also gone to a Maple Leaf hockey game. That doesn't mean I'm a Maple Leaf fan. Uh, and I don't really know what Bilberg's position on this is, but I, I do understand your question. I must say, you are, I'm very impressed with your group. You're very well organized. I've gone across the country, and one of you have been up on this question every, every time. And I, 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 no, but I actually say it with congratulations. I think, it's, I, think, I think it's a good thing that you're doing. Hi, Mr. Kirsten Jerson. 
Pleasure. How you doing? I just wanted to know, uh, what did you mean when you, you said uh, illegal we do immediately, unconstitutional takes a little longer, the WikiLeaks document? What do you mean by that? Uh, come on. No, no, no. I mean, it came out WikiLeaks. Yeah, I mean, it's another stuff on it. In it. Do you uh, know the agenda of the Bilderberg? What? what are you doing this for? I'm just, I'm, I'm here covering this event. Just wanted to talk oh. to you. Uh, we are change. And we want to know maybe what the agenda of the Bilderberg Group meeting is going to be in a couple oh, days. Do you know? Get lost, please. Uh, how does it feel Let's winning get the lost. How does it feel winning the Freedom Award when you're wanted as a mass murderer and wanted in many countries and and butchered millions of people? How, how does it feel? You're you know coward. it's a lie. You self-serving coward. Get lost. I'm not a coward. You know this Freedom Award's a lie, and you're wanted for mass murder in different countries. You know it's a lie. I am pleased to be able to say that there are no shortage of such clips that could be played in a segment like this, demonstrating the power of the citizen media and the way that these superclass inevitably scurry like the cockroaches that they are every time the light of public inquiry is shone in their faces. And this is happening on a more and more frequent basis, so my hat is absolutely off to every single person who is participating in this citizen media revolution and is asking the real questions that the establishment mouthpiece media never ever asks these individuals, it is having an incalculable effect in shaping people's understanding of what is really going on, and it is being done by average people with $20 used cameras or cell phones or the like that I would be willing to bet almost every single person in the audience listening to me right now has access to as well. So we are all potentially a part of this revolution. There is really very little excuse in this day and age for not being one of these people who is trying to bring this to the light of public awareness, whether that's going to some and confronting some of these uh, these super gophers or whether it's uh, participating in some sort of cop watch activity. Whatever that is, there is no doubt that this surveillance, the idea of us taking the cameras and using it against the system that is trying to surveil us, is an extremely powerful tool. And again, it's important to understand just how easy this is to do. It does take work to do it well, and it's certainly not something that, that everyone is going to be cut out for, but it is something that at least everyone can try, and people can support those people who are doing it. And when we talk about the people who are doing this, certainly in the political context, I think there is no one uh, that comes close to the the type of work that's going on under the auspices of the We Are Change banner. Now, of course, I don't necessarily promote any particular group. I don't think you have to be a member of any particular group to do anything. So if you want to do it by yourself, absolutely do that. Or with your own friends, or start your own group, or join another group. Whatever it is that you want to do, as long as people are getting involved in this, I'm happy uh, that they are doing so. So why don't we learn from some of the people who have been doing this for a long time. Recently, Luke Rudkowski of We Are Change posted a very informative little uh, behind-the-scenes documentary of his recent confrontation with globalist insider extraordinaire Henry Kissinger, and it is very interesting to see the work that goes into setting up one of these confrontations and exactly how that's accomplished. Again, it's something that can be done by literally everyone out there right now, so it is something that we can all learn from, and hopefully, with this type of example setting, Everyone can learn something from this and hopefully apply it for themselves. And rather than having one or two people doing this, we could have 
hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people becoming the real media, asking the real questions to these real insiders. This is Lugardowski of WeAreChange.org, and many times I get asked the question, how is it possible that you're able to get so close to celebrities and all these powerful politicians? Well, the answer is very simple. It's a lot of hard work, determination, and persistence. Uh, to give you an example of what we do, I'm going to show you my recent confrontation with Henry Kissinger. Now, the first thing we do is we bust our butts and we look everywhere. We look in newspapers and all the websites and we look for events that are happening in New York City. And once we found this event, we knew we had to be there. So the second thing we do is pretty much contact the public relations people of the Intrepid, the people who are hosting this event. We contact them. We call them. We email them. And you just pretty much say, I'm blank from blank and blank news agency and we want to cover your event. It may take some persuasion like it did in this time. It actually took six email exchanges, but we were finally approved last minute to attend this event. And once we were, we hit the subway, did our research, did our homework, thought of the questions on there, and we get there. As soon as we get there, there's two protesters, but next to the two protesters is NYPD, state and federal agencies, security guards, everywhere with earpieces walking around and it was pretty uh nerve-wracking but ultimately we found out that was mainly because this was an event filled with top nypd members and military members people like david petraeus david coke were there in attendance as well so we just decided to go for it we walked right in and we met t these two public relations people. We showed them our uh, press IDs and they pretty much let us in there. But as they were letting us in there, they let us know the terms and conditions of, of, of them allowing us to cover this event. And they pretty much told us that they're going to be with us this entire time babysitting us. And make, I mean, their job was pretty much to make sure that the journalists weren't able to be journalists. They, they sat down and they told us, look, there's no questions, there's no interviews, you're here only to take pictures and videos. Whatever else you need help with will be right here standing right next to you. And that was kind of unsettling because we had people like David Petraeus right in front of us, just smiling, just waiting to be asked a question. Uh, the Fisher family, David Koch, even Bo Deedle was there. I mean, we had a great exchange with him a couple of years ago. Remember, you remember, you remember the movie One Tough Cop? You remember the movie? Yeah. I used to knock out 10 guys, one by one. So who wants to go first? You gonna knock us out? So knowing the restrictions, knowing the limitations, knowing that these two PR people would be right next to us the entire time, I had to think of a way to actually still be able to do something. So I originally was gonna go ask if I could use the restroom and on my way to my, to the restroom I was gonna ask Kissinger in the reception. But before that even happened I saw Henry Kissinger's bodyguard, the man that's always with him, walk past me. We kind of looked at each other for a little bit and then the two PR people came up to me and said, oh actually Kissinger he's not gonna go in the reception, he's already in the main gala. So sorry you can't take a picture of Kissinger, which was disappointing. And and then after that, we were actually escorted out of the event with the rest of the journalists outside 
So we wouldn't actually walk past Mr. Kissinger, Petraeus, and Coke. We were actually escorted outside like little children. Uh, so we could enter a different way into the gala. So we wouldn't walk past all these individuals. And then we were left in this little pin. And in this little pin, the only exit and entrance was covered by these two public relations people. Now, how, what was I going to do? How was I able to get to Kissinger, who's in the middle of this huge gala with all the security guards, with these two public relations people all over us, making sure we don't go anywhere we're not supposed to. What was I supposed to do? Accompanied by his wife, Nancy, the Honorable Henry Kissinger. Space Museum, I am deeply honored to present the 2013 Intrepid Award to my friend and my hero, the Honorable Henry A. Kissinger. I just felt pissed off because I just wasted five hours. I was there for a very long time, just waiting there patiently to, to do something. But magically, in the middle of this gala, they decided to have a dinner break. And then people started getting up and started talking to each other. And I started thinking there, like, all right, this is, this is, this is my chance. This is it. So I, so I told the two PR people, I'm going to the bathroom. I went to the bathroom. And I, I was nervous. I was extremely scared. I mean, this is Henry... Kissinger. This is a man that's still very powerful and influential and still even advises the NSA currently today. And I just took two big deep breaths and I just decided just to go for it. And there you see me walking across the gala. I was definitely not well dressed for this event. I definitely recommend putting on a suit so you don't stick out like a sore thumb like you see me here. And I walked past David Petraeus. I walked past David Koch. And there was Henry Kissinger. He had food on a shirt, too. And I just decided to take a deep breath, and I decided just to go for it. Hi, Mr. Kissinger. It was a huge relief. No one noticed it. The security guards didn't notice it. The two PR people don't notice it. And I, and I went back into my little press freedom box, and I felt ecstatic. I felt a huge release, and I felt really happy being able to do this. Once again, that's Luke Krakowski of We Are Change at wearechange.org. And as always, the link to that video, as well as all of the other documents and videos we cite today, will be available in the show notes at corbettreport.com. Well, that is an excellent example of how this is done and how it can be done by almost anyone out there. So once again, let's take this to heart and attempt to implement this solution. But of course, with any real revolution and with anything that really does press upon the nerve of power... There is going to be a backlash, and we already see that coming. With the advent of these types of technologies that level the playing field uh, from surveillance to surveillance comes an inevitable backlash in which the authorities try to make it illegal to use these technologies against them. These are gods who are special and cannot be filmed or recorded in any way. It is sad, but it is also in one way ridiculous to look at some of the examples of just how far the system is willing to go to retaliate against people who are attempting to use surveillance to expose their abuses. 
75 years behind bars. A prison sentence that long is rarely handed down, and it's usually just for murderers or rapists. But a local man faces 75 years in prison for a nonviolent crime. What he's accused of doing is something many people have done, but most don't realize it's actually illegal. Let him go. What you're witnessing is now against the law in some states. This is also becoming illegal. As well as this. Don't tase me, bro. These infamous scenes are being banned in more and more states. Sit down. The police in these recordings are not necessarily the ones breaking the law. It's the people recording the police. Recording audio of law enforcement without their consent is considered a crime in a dozen states, including Illinois. That sounds like a, a plot in a movie. To call what I did a crime is, is ridiculous. Michael Allison publicly recorded law enforcement in Robinson, Illinois. Now he's charged with five felonies with up to 15 years in prison for each count. That's a total of 75 years if convicted. 75 years in prison. And, and it's, it's just so unbelievable. Allison could spend the rest of his life behind bars. The 42-year-old is out on bail preparing to stand trial. The crime he's accused of? Eavesdropping. This doesn't make any sense. And uh, the, for, for one thing, the statute, as it's written, can be interpreted any which way. Illinois is one of the states applying old eavesdropping and wiretapping statutes to new technologies like cell phones or anything else that records audio. Those laws technically make it illegal to record on-duty law enforcement officials without their consent. The penalty for that crime here in Illinois is the same as rape. They're actually trying to say that, that uh, I have committed a crime and it's a class one felony. As bad and, as rape. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Some of these stories are so ludicrous, so ridiculous, so off the charts that they would be funny if they were not so serious. But at any rate, they are an indication that the system is genuinely scared of the power that these technologies have to level the play, playing field and to expose abuses in a way that is incontrovertible and undeniable. And obviously for a system that is corrupt, that is going to be a problem, so they will attempt to fight back about it. And we can see legislature after legislature trying to pass this or that law to outlaw the, the videotaping or recording of the conversations or the actions of this godlike superclass of would-be authority figures when they're in public, but, uh, but that doesn't make it actual law. And if it runs up against a little something called, for example, in the United States context, the First Amendment of the Constitution, then there might be a problem there when this is actually challenged in the courts. And there have been successes uh, time and time again by people who have stood up to these types of rulings, and there have been a lot of successes. And one uh, example of that that I'd like to document here is something that we first introduced to you on the eye-opener report, the Boiling Frogs Post eye-opener report back in January of last year, when we had an episode on solutions and answers to the encroaching police state, and we highlighted the story of Carlos Miller. With the realization that more people are wielding and using their cameras as a tool to keep the so-called authorities honest, has come an inevitable backlash by the system. In 2009, the UK went so far as to pass a law deeming anyone so much as suspected of taking a picture of a police officer as a criminal. When confronted by a massive backlash against the law, including a protest in Trafalgar Square in January 2010, 
the London Metropolitan Police attempted to assure the public that it was their policy to allow filming or photographing of public spaces and police personnel. As late as last month, however, a photographer in Mansfield was threatened with arrest by two police community support officers for having taken photographs in a public space. In the U.S., police around the country have tried again and again to arrest citizens for photographing or filming their actions, and these cases have been thrown out again and again by judges. Although laws vary from state to state, the vast majority of states have unambiguous laws that allow for the filming of public officials in public spaces. One person campaigning for greater awareness of these laws is Carlos Miller, proprietor of the website Photography is Not a Crime. He has twice been arrested for filming the police and has twice beaten those charges, and has engaged the Miami-Dade Metro Rail security on multiple occasions, despite the Metro Rail's stated policy of allowing photography at its stations. Earlier this month, I had the chance to talk to Carlos Miller about the ways that an informed populace can help in the fight to keep public spaces open to photography and video by simply arming themselves with a camera. You know, they arrest somebody well, when they arrested me. You know, they, they arrested me for taking pictures. That was obvious. Well, they couldn't really write that in an arrest report. So they said, well, he was standing in the middle of the street. He was blocking traffic. He was creating a big disturbance. And these are five cops. You know, and if it wasn't for any photography, any cameras, well, you know, who's the judge going to believe? Who's the jury going to believe? They're not going to believe me or five cops. They're going to believe the cops. They come in there with their uniforms and and people, most juries have a tendency to believe the cops. Even now with video, it actually shows what really happened. So it, it forces the cops to be honest. And a lot of cops are used to stretching the truth just to you know, make the charges stick, you know, to, to their agenda. And that really, that really, um, hinders what sometimes what they want to do because sometimes you, know, you have a lot of cops who who want to who arrest people on unlawful charges and, and they make it up just because they don't like your attitude we call it contempt of cop you know if you back talk to a cop or you question a cop or if you ask his badge number for example if you ask his name and you want you because you know cops want to be respected and so do we and I, I always tell people to respect cops, but, you know, you don't necessarily have to kiss their butt. You know, you, you don't have to, oh, you, I mean, you have the right to question why they're pulling you over. You, you have that right as citizens. We're not living in a police state yet, but, but a lot of times they will arrest you for asking their names and badge number. So that, that's the reason. I mean, they, they don't want to be recorded because it just shows the truth. And they have nothing to hide because there's a lot of cops who don't have anything to hide. And you, you'll see a lot of cops who just tell you, you know, just stay out of my way. Don't interfere with my investigation. You just stay across the street, record all you want, and that's it. And, you, and usually those cops are doing their job, and th that video is not really interesting because they're doing their job. And that's the way it should be. And we, we, I mean, I would wish that we can just record cops and have a bunch of boring videos that no one cares about because they're not doing anything. But what you have now is you start recording a cop, they get in your face, they start threatening you. And then they make themselves look really stupid. I, they they send me the video. I put it up on my blog, and it just goes viral. And then the cop gets mad. Well, he, he is the one that made himself look stupid. And that, we, we see that every day, almost. Once again, that was Carlos Miller of photographyisnotacrime.com, as featured in a previous Boiling Frogs post eye-opener report. And it goes again to show that when people stand up against the ridiculous types of laws that are being passed to try to limit the people's access to surveillance and surveillance technologies, 
they can win. They can actually win those cases because, again, the vast, uh, vast amount of the population is on the side of the average citizen to be able to document what these godlike authorities are doing. And again, as we've demonstrated, this applies in political contexts and in every other way besides that these te technologies that are being used to track everything that we do can also be used to show what the governments themselves are doing and the supposed authority figures and the people who are really pulling the strings even and what they're thinking and doing. And uh, they don't like the scrutiny any more than you and I do. So it is an effective tool to fight back against the system that is being created around us. Well, so good, so far so good, so straightforward, isn't it? Well, unfortunately, this is the Corbett Report, so we can't leave things on an utterly straightforward note. And while surveillance does promise to be an effective way of fighting back against this and helping to, at the very least, raise awareness amongst the public of the abuses that are going on, there is always the problem that we run into when fighting fire with fire that, well, it ultimately will probably leave you burned as well. And this is the problem of normalizing the types of surveillance and recording technologies to the point where they become almost internalized or even eventually literally internalized. Well, what are we talking about here? Of course, we're talking about the ultimately the transhumanist agenda to merge man with machine and to make sure that, well, just as people can't really seem to leave the house these days without their cell phone, well, pretty soon you'll have that technology embedded directly into your into your clothing and perhaps into a chip that you'll wear and eventually into something that will be internalized in your body. And this will all be a process that will be rolled out through the course of a generation if need be. And it will all seem just so natural and inevitable when it comes. And part of that is the ubiquitous nature of this recording technology. Well, you need the cell phone to make these types of videos that can then be used to expose the system, so why not just have it embedded directly in your eyeball? Unfortunately, this is not a crazy uh, sci-fi idea that I'm pulling out of my hat. This goes back directly to the foundation of the idea of surveillance. If you'll recall from the original clip that we played at the top of today's episode introducing the idea of surveillance, this comes from a University of Toronto researcher named Steve Mann who coined the term and has been, well, uh, putting his money where his mouth is for decades, he has himself become sort of a living, walking, breathing example of what the ultimate in surveillance technology might look like, which is simply to document and record everything that happens to you all the time, 100% of the time. And what better way to do that than by using something like, well, an eye tap, which looks remarkably like Google Glasses. Wow, I thought that was a new idea just invented by Google. No, it's been around for a long time, and this is all part of the rolling out and indoctrination of the public to normalize this type of technology and to make it absolutely indispensable to our lives. So let's take a look at a little clip about Steve Mann. I live in a computer-mediated world, and for many years I have shared my personal experiences with people over the internet so that anybody on the internet can look through my eyes and see and experience my computer-generated world and modify my visual perception of reality as a way of communicating with me. So when my daughter had her first birthday I naturally captured this experience and was able to share that online on the internet and communicate and interact with people immediately. Capturing and sharing everyday experiences. Computers were traditionally once about calculations. In the old days, you know, you had 
you had computers that were designed for adding up numbers and doing calculations and so on. Uh, but I had a, a different vision and that, that would be uh, computers were used for doing communications much more like the telephone rather than the calculator. And so I envisioned that we'd have a new world in which computers were bringing people together. The history of wearable computers. Professor Mann first invented wearable computing in the 1970s, building the first wearable computers for computer-aided photography. It was in the 1980s that Professor Mann's wearable computers began a cyber fashion movement in Toronto. In 1991, Steve Mann brought his work to MIT. It's, 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 it's a very, very different time for us. I think it's probably one of the best examples we have of where somebody brought with them an extraordinarily interesting seed and then it sort of you know it grew and there are many people now so-called cyborgs in the media lab and the people working on wearable computers all over the place professor mann is now a faculty member at the university of toronto in the department of electrical and computer engineering throughout his work professor mann has been continuously wearing his inventions using them in everyday life i tap technology for over the last 30 years, I've been designing, building, inventing, and wearing these kinds of computer systems that modify the visual perception of reality. Unlike virtual reality, in which uh, the view of the world is blocked and you, you, you see only a synthetic world, virtual reality is like a blindfold. It blocks us from seeing the real world and synthesizes completely. Mediated reality, on the other hand, modifies what we see. And in so doing, it forms a role of being a device to communicate. Well, I trust that longtime viewers of this report will not have to be told why this is uh, potentially such a large problem and is definitely the dark side of this surveillance idea, which is the normalization of this technology and its implementation in our everyday lives to the point where we are basically walking cyborgs, which is part of the long-term transhumanist eugenics agenda. For those of you out there who are still new to this idea of transhumanism, I would just suggest you type the word transhumanism or transhumanist into the CorbettReport.com search bar and see some of my previous work on this subject to understand the true implications of this and where it's going. So there is a dark side to this, and I guess if we were going to conclude something from today, we might want to look back again at that metaphor of the panopticon, the Jeremy Bentham 18th century idea of the perfect prison, whereby the prisoners feel like they're being watched all the time and thus start to modify their behavior accordingly. The surveillance answer to this would be, well, why don't you give the, uh, the, the prisoners access to watch what the guards in the guard tower are doing all the time, and then it will be a more equitable uh, playing field, and thus they'll be able to catch abuses of guard power, and they'll feel more empowered. Well, again, that is potentially useful, and it certainly would help the, uh, the prisoners' positions, but at the end of the day, they're still prisoners who are still caught in a prison system. So this isn't going to be the ultimate answer that solves all of the solutions, all of the problems of society. The societal problems are much more foundational than anything that a, a simple recording device is going to be able to achieve. It is a stepping stone, I think, on the process to that part of the mass awakening of society at large to the issues of surveillance and why 
why this is such a uh, large problem. So it is a, an essential part of getting to the larger solution of fundamentally transforming our society. But it's only one part of that process. So this is, again, just one part of the solutions that we are presenting here on a regular basis. For more solutions on a whole host of topics, again, just type this keyword solutions into the search bar on CorbettReport.com for some of our previous work. But one solution that I will offer to you right now is to help continue spreading the awareness of the reality of the NSA situation, the total government surveillance that is happening. And one way that you can do that, again, is to get that Boiling Frogs Post interview with Russ Tice and my own interview with Russ Tice and help spread that to the four winds. As I say, it is starting to gain mainstream national attention. And I have word that this is going to be hitting some of the mainstream TV networks very soon as they can't afford to uh, to pass up a story like this once it's broken. So this is starting to have an effect and we can push it further. I will be having a Boiling Frogs post. I open a report out next week on this issue of NSA surveillance and blackmail. It's a huge issue. So once again, please do your part in helping to spread the word about this. And please uh, to explore the show notes for today's episode for more on this idea of surveillance and how we can all play a part in becoming the media rather than s- sitting passively and just accepting it. This is part of the empowerment of society to understand that we are the the answer, we are the solution, and uh, it will come from us. The revolution may not be televised, but it may appear on the internet. So, at any rate, we're going to leave things there for today, but as always, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, looking forward to talking to you again very soon. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.